Welcome to the Crexie Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. I'm Ryan Schlesinger, Director of Revenue Operations at Crexie, and today's host. Each episode, the Crexie team dives into a broad range of topics and conversations with featured experts to investigate trends, educate listeners, and understand the latest industry news in CRE. As the nation's fastest growing online CRE platform, we're excited to provide a window into the inner workings of commercial real estate for this generation and the next. Welcome, and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Crexie Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. I'm your host, Ryan Schlesinger, Director of Revenue Operations at Crexie. Today, we are thrilled to sit down with Laura Dietzel of RSM. Laura specializes in providing real estate audit and consulting matters for privately held companies and private equity funds specializing in real estate. Since joining RSM, she has worked with commercial, residential, retail, hotels, and real estate opportunity funds, as well as performed due diligence services for real estate funds and various lenders in the real estate conduit markets. Laura has over 15 years of experience in real estate and public accounting and has developed and presented multiple continuing education courses in the real estate industry. In 2018, she was elected as a senior analyst in RSM's Cutting Edge Industry Eminence Program, which positions its senior analysts to understand, forecast, and communicate economic, business, and technology trends shaping the industries RSM serves. Laura's analysis and research on the real estate markets have been routinely published and shared in the media. Laura, welcome to the show. And with that, why don't we dive into it? How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Today is Wednesday, Feb 10th. It is a little afternoon Pacific, just in case anything crazy in the real estate world happens that we wouldn't address. <laughs> um, so um, I'm so excited to talk with you today. And we're going to dive into a subject that, frankly, in my uh, real estate career, I didn't get to touch on too much, which is specifically the hotel industry. That sounds great. There's a, a, obviously a, There's obviously a lot going on and a lot to talk about. So looking forward to our discussion. Yes. So I think, you know, just to dive, dive right into the topic with hotels probably being the asset that was uh, impacted most uh, from COVID and, and the pandemic here, you know, it, at a holistic high level, you know, what happened? So Ryan, obviously COVID-19 was the black swan event that for travel, certainly no one saw coming. So in an age where we're wanderlusting, we're fueled by these social media influencers and posting, and I, I'm already planning my next trip when I'm still on a current trip, um, the world basically stopped for hospitality in March and April. So travel for both business and leisure came to an absolute halt. Um, and so honestly, those travel halts were prompted a lot by governmental restrictions and guidelines emerging in the U.S. and abroad. And while no one could have planned for that event, um, we've seen that travel rebounded once the reopening happened, but has since stalled um, over the summer months. We got back to some sort of um, volume, much more depressed than we would have expected year over year looking at just normal travel trends. So while many CEOs continue to be um, cautiously optimistic about the vaccine, the rollout, we know that rollout has been stubborn. It's not going as fast as we want it to. And at the end of the day, we may be stuck here in a world where we're just coexisting with COVID-19. But the moral of the story is people want to travel, people want to return to leisure travel, but in a way that's sustainable and safe. And so ultimately, once there's increased level of therapeutics, a vaccine readily available, and this just becomes our new normal as coexisting with COVID, um, that will mean there will be a more meaningful, full recovery for hospitality ahead. 
Got it. Thank you. I think that was a really good, succinct way to put it. And uh, something that's been overarching and hitting all all corners of the country, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, one thing I think that that maybe doesn't get talked about uh, a lot when you, when you kind of talk about COVID is how, um, you know, people kind of talk about the whole the whole topic. But I really do think that especially, you know, speaking in terms of commercial real estate, it does hit different regions or asset types or investment classes differently. You know, I think, um, you know, it, it, when it comes to hotels, is there any kind of distinctions, whether it's regionally or, you know, just d- different markets or asset classes that you can kind of detail were affected differently by COVID? Yeah, you've definitely seen a great divide in terms of those states and talking about the U.S. anyways, that remained open throughout the pandemic and those that implemented more strict closure. So markets like Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina really benefited as being seen as a drive to destination where people could enjoy an openness of the business climate and not really be limited in what they could do, whether it was dining activities or be restricted by whether that did not allow those activities to happen. Um, But ultimately, for hospitality, those catering to the lower end of the market, those essential travelers um, that didn't cut back in terms of their business travel, meaning those truck drivers, those traveling nurses that were assisting on early in the pandemic, utilizing the lower end of the market in terms of the segments catering to those type of travelers, we didn't really see um, in terms of the budget hotel segment that much differentiation in occupancy. So whereas leisure was very significantly hit by the impact of travelers pulling back immediately in some of the business segments, specifically in you know central business districts like New York and San Francisco that rely heavily on business travel, those have been decimated in terms of the demand. But again, those drive-to destinations as well as those catering to um, just the regular workforce travel, construction workers, um, traveling nurses, they weren't just as impacted. Sure. No, I think that totally makes sense. And I think, you know, one question I would have for someone like you that, you know, uh, has clients that maybe have a portfolio that spans the whole country, you know, have you seen maybe a shift in their strategy or, or you know, is it is it more of something because of the, the, the valuation hit that they're taking that they're kind of holding on to maybe some assets that have had losses and looking forward or how have they adjusted their strategy looking forward? Yeah, well, it certainly depends uh, how deep your pockets are. So if you are an investor that has a long investment horizon uh, for yourself and for your investment, um, it may be okay to hold on, especially if you're in a marquee market or have a marquee asset, let's say in New York, even though recovery is expected to be longer, they still anticipate some sort of recovery for a business and corporate travel. What we're trying to understand is what will ultimately be the demand drivers going forward. We've been disrupted in the way that you and I are talking via Zoom today. Um, A lot of the meetings and those day in, fly in, fly outs, those simply just won't have a need going forward as individuals discover that, hey, this meeting could be a Zoom. Um, We don't really need to be in person. And those in-person meetings may be reserved for other segments of the business, travel that won't go away. And so there's still a calculus out there trying to determine what that mix is. And so ultimately, people are making their bets right now. How how far down will business travel go? Are we expecting, you know, an 85% recovery, 70%, 50%? 
no one really knows. So unless you have a clairvoyant as part of your investment committee, it's really difficult to understand as the future is really unfolding before our eyes. What I will say is realizing in this completely remote environment, we realize that in order to build relationships, get business deals accomplished, uh, build up corporate culture, you need to be in person. And so business travel won't go away 100%, but that's really a segment of the market that investors are looking at um, more strictly trying to understand, You know, are there some assets that won't recover or have the demand generators going forward that makes sense in terms of underwriting the fundamentals? Yeah, I think I think you touched on a great point there too, because I think while the, you do have those sort of two fundamentals in conflict, is that there are people now that believe that meetings can be done virtually and maybe business doesn't need to be face to face. But like you said, you know, I think to get an advantage in the corporate world, some of that does really need to be done face to face. And and I think you actually have a really interesting perspective on that coming from a company that does advisory and consulting, where where travel is 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 or at least was a big part of the business. And you know, even even not just through maybe a real estate lens, but but from your own company and maybe maybe some others in the space. Like, do you expect do you expect kind of the consulting world and maybe some of those other heavy dependent air travel businesses going back, or are they still kind of wait and see right now? Listen, we have clients all over the spectrum. Some say it's great; we can be on a Zoom. We're just as productive. Your team doesn't need to come out here and take up my real estate office space, by the way, which is which is another segment of. Uh, commercial real estate that's been um, contemplating future use, uh, the footprint requirement going forward. And so we have clients on both ends of the spectrum. Some are saying, we need you out here. This is, you know, a very much an intensive process and it's putting an undue stress on our team, not having you side by side working through issues and available when we're available. And others are saying, this is great. We actually can save on travel costs and paying our consultants um, to come out here, be with our team, meals, travel, all the things that come with it. Um, and so it's a balance of when it makes sense versus, you know, what those demands are going forward, realizing that some of this work really can be done and done quite effectively remotely. So instead of saying your team needs to be out here for, you know, 10 weeks at a time, maybe it's a two week in person um, part of the engagement that really requires that intensive uh coordination between teams um, going forward. So again, we're in a flux and a shift. And while people don't anticipate we're going back 100%, there's still a question mark on what the market will dictate going forward as we continue to work through the pluses and minuses of doing work virtually. Totally. I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, to kind of segue exactly what you're talking about is you know, what What does the road to recovery look like, kind of taking it back to the hospitality's road to recovery? You know, what What as we come out of it and vaccines roll out and we, we do come back to what will probably be a new normal, um, what, what does hospitality's road to recovery look like? It's a long, twisted road with a lot of frustrating starts and stops. And so ultimately, as we mentioned earlier on, um, jabs and arms are a start, but they may not be a complete solution for driving the demand generators for hospitality going forward. So as you think of some of the other emerging companies that are trying to disrupt the traditional hospitality models or new competitors in the space, you point to Airbnb's showcase um, and IPOing this year and the robust demand that was seen in terms of wanting to get in on that 
because of the way they've been able to pivot their business and really understand consumer preferences that were shifting in real time. And so what Airbnb did is see an opportunity to start marketing to those that wanted to travel, but also work from destinations that were favorable. I sit in Chicago. I don't want to be here in the winter. And so if I have the opportunity to go work from Florida for a couple of weeks, why not? And so they realized this really early on and changed really who they were marketing to and their target audience to not just take that leisure travel, the long-term wanderlust wanderer that was looking to explore a place, but also saying that, hey, these uh, the business segment is looking to get out. They want other places to work. And some of the larger hotel chains took note as well. So Marriott, Hilton, and others have said, we're just going to start pressing this workation to business executives who need a comfortable place to work and their kids are out of school, whether they're remote learning. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity for people to pick up and really work from anywhere and not have the ramifications of losing out on other experiences that were going on around us. The world literally came to a halt and hospitality is really trying to figure out how can I generate additional revenue drivers in this interim period that are linked to lifestyle, the way people want to experience the world, the way that we're going to integrate working from anywhere as that's become a more comfortable concept for corporations. This will be something that'll be really an interesting trend to watch and how hotels are capitalizing. You're starting to see a differentiation in the market as we do recover for those lifestyle-focused brands that are around fitness and wellness, really catering to the traveler that is looking for that as part of their you know, workcation or time away from the office, but really being able to live, work, and play in an environment where they want to that maybe is or isn't close to home. Yeah, I think I think that's something that's really fascinating to pay attention to is that, you know, Airbnb, because of the nature's business model, was was so perfectly equipped to pivot to that very quickly, right? Whereas, you know, I don't think most people who wanted to go stay somewhere for a couple of months were thinking, oh, I should pop into a Marriott. Right, for sure. And especially from a cost-effective perspective, if you had a month rental on Airbnb, you may get a significant break versus hotel room rate, which can rack up pretty quickly. So hotels are trying to figure out that balance so that they can cater to the demand generator um, currently, but not also reduce their average daily rates so far down where the recovery just looks even longer and more frustrating than it needs to. Another point to think about is what the future of food and beverage offerings at hotels looks like. Um, that was a great revenue generator for a lot of hospitality, especially at the higher end. But with the advent of technology and the ability to Grubhub basically about anything you want or Uber Eats, partnering with you know these Michelin-rated restaurants, you really don't have to have a robust food and beverage service offering anymore. Um, the ability to for customers to go out, get what they need in the market, have things delivered to the property um, has caused a light bulb to go off for many hotel operators and investors in saying that that capital intensive investment and the investment in running that operation may or may not make sense going forward, depending on the segment of the market that you're trying to cater to. So that's really another interesting trend to watch as we continue down this path um, of recovery. Because I think I think that's a that's that's a good thought too is how they pivot and maybe the way that they uh, in, in terms of their tenants but but really more the way they would build in the future because I know you know back when I was working on the multifamily side 
you know, there was a big shift in millennial preference that they were actually rather have smaller apartment units, but more amenity space. And now when people kind of want more space to themselves, especially if you're working from home, you could see a shift there. Do you think maybe in future hotel development, you'll start to see people adjust it based on one, how insulated limited service was uh, compared to, to full service hotels in this environment? And what you said before, where, you know, maybe people aren't needing a dining option or, or heavily amenitized option within the hotel. Yeah, well, and people still want to gather. So I don't think that aspect of the hotel bar will go away and that ability to, you know, mm-hmm. work in a communal space once people are feel that it's safe to do so, because you still seek as humans that sense of community that I don't think will ever go away. It will be different in terms of the investments required or what hotels view as being top of mind. In this current environment, consumers are demanding a focus on health and safety. And so touchless technology investments for check-in, mobile key entry, the way that front desk requests are coordinated via your own mobile device versus touching a hotel phone that maybe uh, a million guests have touched before. You don't know the last time it was cleaned. Those are some measures that have already taken off in terms of the investments that Um, Hotels that are technologically savvy have already thought about, made investments in that I think you'll see go down a further path in the marketplace. You've also seen these butler pantries and that becoming more and more, you know, a way of room service to be delivered to you, but in a way that would help you maintain, you know, distancing guidelines and, and maybe preserve your own personal physical space when you don't want to have that interaction with someone out there in in the wild. Um, But ultimately, I would say for hospitality, the focus has, and I think will continue to be bring together a community. And when people are traveling, especially for business, um, when they're not with their families or friends on leisure travel, they still require that sense of belonging community that I don't think you'll say the hotel bar is going away. Right. No, I think I think that's a really good point and, and interesting to see and, and, and see how people kind of do trickle back to those those things that we all value there. I think obviously something something that, you know, you I'm assuming people in the hotel space pay very close attention to. And again, like we said earlier, it's February 10th and these things change every day. But where do you kind of see traveler behavior right now in terms of just kind of raw volume, but also, you know, regional, especially it being February, like you said, Chicago, not necessarily where everyone's flocking to at at the moment. But do you see kind of any trends, whether it's, you know, dependent on, you know, region and climate, but also maybe regulations around what's what's available uh, amenity wise? Yeah. And so this is typically a really slow period of travel um, across the country. So we know that, you know, Hilton CEO came out and said this, the next 60 to 90 days is going to be a really dark period to get through for hotels. But the expectation is that on the other side of that, that he anticipates that the recovery is going to be even more robust than everybody's Uh, being a little bit more tempered about. And so consumers' desire to travel is building. I know for someone like me who looks forward to at least an international trip a year, several trips to California, New York, Florida, Austin, Texas, I just, I can't imagine once I feel safe enough to travel, once my company also opens up that opportunity to travel, that I'll be on the first flight out. And so ultimately that desire to travel is there and it's building up, but who's allowing that? So we'll see a marked increase in demand 
once companies say, you know what, workforce, it's safe. We're not there yet. And so ultimately, we know it wasn't two weeks to bend the curve. It wasn't even two months. We're a year into this thing. And many of the epidemiologists now are saying, maybe it's the fall where there's a vaccine immunity, but maybe it's all these variants that cause another pause and make this a really frustrating recovery in terms of that full recovery that we anticipate is needed to support all segments of hospitality. So we, we're looking at airlines. So airline um, routes were really severely depressed. They took a lot of cuts going into Q1, understanding that the demand is just not there yet. Um, and we haven't really seen that turn the corner um, through at least probably Q2, Q3. Um, the summer travel picked up, people were traveling by car. And so again, it's that confidence and the safety of air travel that will help open up you know, all geographies in terms of a more robust recovery that we'd see. Sunbelt has definitely seen just more activity in general, in terms of migration patterns, where people want to be, the ability to be outside and be socially distanced, whether you're going hiking or rafting or sitting on a beach, that's all played positively into assets that are positioned in that manner. But the real struggle will continue to be those central business districts in those dependent markets for fly to travel. But people want to travel. People want to travel. People want to travel for work. Um, it's just, you know, people are not, you know, people want to travel for anything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they just want to get out of the yes, house. Get me out of these same four walls. It's absolutely, that's the case, but, um, it's really hard. If you start looking at the sentiment surveys, it's really, really depressed international travel. For example, um, it's only anticipated to be, you know, 25% of what it was last <laughs> in normal times. Wow. So that's like, we're like, woo, we're at 25%, you know, so severely depressed. But the, the moral of the story is we're a long ways away from normal. And while we have enjoyed a certain level of comeback, we're still a far, far away from uh, normalized behavior. And many point to 2024 as being really that period of time where we fully recovered from an occupancy perspective and a, and a revenue perspective in terms of ADR. Yeah, and I, and I think you know it, it's really especially like you said the the words from the Hilton CEO. I think especially for those those regions where you don't have the warm weather are, are really going to be tough, especially over the next couple of months, just because uh, you know people aren't necessarily if they are uh, muster mustering up the energy yeah. to travel. Uh, they're probably not going to the Chicago's and Minnesota's and Midwest and no. East. So. Especially if you don't have to be at a conference, right? You were only coming to Chicago in the winter if you had to attend a conference. And right. we know those are those are on hold. So corporate travel agencies were showing that there's an 84% in drop in ticketed transactions from the corporate side, which is crazy. On the leisure side, um, for airlines, it was down 44% through October. So again, we are just a, a far, far away from normal behavior. You know, because one thing I think, you know, in the last piece in terms of recovery, um, when, you, when you look at it holistically, I think, like we said, those big urban CBDs probably get impacted the, the most. You know, your New York's, uh, San Francisco, Chicago. You know, do you think there may be uh, tourist, tourist markets, uh, maybe some secondary cities, especially maybe, you know, like whether it's Phoenix or Miami, you know, Fort Lauderdale, do you think that there's, there's secondary cities that actually may, you know, see, see kind of a, a 
an uptick maybe just from the fundamental change or is it still such a depression that they, they really won't quite get to above where they were a year or so ago? No, we, we definitely saw over the summer months that traveler, we saw occupancies 90 to 100% along the eastern coast seaboard for states that were open for business. So again, there was a big disparity between being open for business and being closed for business. So as analysts, we've looked at the open table uh, reservation data, and it's really shown a tale of two environments. States that have remained locked down like California, Illinois, and New York versus states that have opened up like Florida, Georgia, and Texas, you can point to year-over-year changes showing that um, the states that remain closed correlated more negatively by an average factor of 36%. Oh, wow. So the, the markets that remained open were benefiting. And then, you know, you can look at the other side of the argument and say, what was the impact of the virus during that period and the spread of the virus once those travelers returned home? It's really crazy to start looking at the mobility data and seeing where people are traveling, the spring break trends at the start of the outbreak that may have impacted, you know, the national outbreak and increased the severity that we saw pop up. But hindsight's 2020 and and we can only look forward. And so if we say openness matters, it's those markets that stay open that will have the benefit of being open and being perceived as a place people want to be. Because once they get there, they can actually do something. They can go to a restaurant. They can feel that they can uh, interact freely. And so especially if you're in a low-risk category, I know I work with colleagues that said, yeah, I'm, I'm low-risk. I mean, what's the chance of me dying from this thing? I'm I'm doing a tour day USA. Right. This, there's never been an opportunity like this. I'm going to continue traveling until you tell me I need to come back to the office. And so again... I'd rather be in a place that was open for business and able to enjoy what that area has to offer than to be somewhere closed where it just wasn't possible. Totally. It's funny because I noticed, especially just being based in here here in LA, just from, from friends and people in my network, <laughs> there was all these people, right. mostly from New York, that were coming to live in, in LA doing that kind of one to two month, you know, work staycation. And to their to their disappointment, there was nothing to do. I mean, California being one of the strictest places, so it was kind of interesting. There, you know, it really felt like uh, you know, the te- like you know, Texas and Florida, as you, you know, they get all the headlines and all the corporations moving there. But it feels like they they really got the got the uh, the major advantage there. They definitely did, and it'll be interesting to see going forward how that plays into the relocation story as you as you think about where people want to be, where they want to live, work, and play. Do they want to be in places that are more restrictive or more open? And so it really is kind of a risk bet that people are, are venturing to take here. I know there's a bunch of my colleagues here that are that are hoping that you know the this this exodus continues so that LA gets cheaper. <laughs> you know, you've definitely seen it in markets like in markets like San Francisco and New York. There's been an unbelievable you know rent break where you see renters in the market being to uh, get nicer, amenitized places because of the rent drop. Right. So maybe that will be the case, and and if so, you'll see me in LA soon. That's for sure. <laughs> let's let's hope. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> One thing you, um, you you touched on that you know back back to the words from from Hilton where we still probably have some dark days here. It really could be fall until you know aside from those regional markets we talked about uh, having a little bit of a bounce back if not if not really thriving. But you know with some of these hotels still having seven eight months to survive here, what kind of strategies have the hotel and ha- hotels taken to survive, and, and what do you think will continue or or change for them to just kind of stay afloat? 
Yeah. And so honestly, hotels are doing anything and everything they can to ensure that they're driving any and every occupancy opportunity that they have, whether it's partnering with universities in the area to provide, believe it or not, student housing for those that want to be a little bit more spread out in their offerings. Um, They're partnering with hospitals to spread out patients recovering from COVID. You've heard stories of governments requiring quarantine once travelers arrive to slow the spread of these new variants and ensure that a quarantine period is in place. So hotels are really trying to grab onto any opportunity at a state and local government level to get an additional revenue generator to see them through to this period. Lenders have kicked the can down the road and through some of the stimulus and aid packages, um, lenders have been incentivized to continue to work with hotels so that they don't end up in a troubled debt restructuring situation from a lender perspective, which they may just say, forget about it. We're cutting the cord. Um, it's We can't provide any further financing because this actually poses a credit risk for our credit committees and our risk profiles. And so ultimately, the second half of this year is really critical because a lot of those lenders kick the can down the road for a period of time. And we'll have to really start thinking about how much longer they can kick that can and whether or not there's additional market participants out there willing to take on this risk. So you've seen these debt funds start gathering some dry powder and other real estate funds focused on acquisition opportunities waiting for this distress to hit. So we've been closely monitoring the CMBS distress markets, and we see that obviously there's pockets of distress that are evidence that may start to Um, gain fruition here in the second half of 2021. We just really haven't seen that tsunami of distress yet. So in those survival strategies, it is the continued fiscal aid. So the government providing continued support through the legislative and regulatory packages passed is helpful. State and local governments providing alternate uh, revenue sources for these hotels, as I mentioned. And then thinking about that top line and how to grow and retain business using data analytics to really think about what the customer base is, how those um, priorities are shifting, how you can partner with tourism um, boards so that you're in the know on other opportunities for your hotel to generate revenue. Um, You've also seen the players extend loyalty programs with existing guests so that guests don't feel pressure that, oh, I don't have my Hilton status anymore or Marriott status, that, hey, I can maintain status. I'm going to get additional perks. I'm going to continue to be loyal to the brand that has extended me this extension during this period of time. So again, Mm -hmm. The relief um, from a fiscal aid and stimulus needs to keep coming to ensure the ability to to survive because there's simply just not enough demand yet to keep hotels afloat um, during this time period where demand's depressed. Yeah. And I think where where hotels, tying this back to our conversation about Airbnb and how they kind of just were naturally positioned to adapt to this, I think that puts hotels in a tough bind because- it doesn't give them a lot of ways to differentiate themselves from the Airbnbs. You know, I know, I, I know some hotels have kind of scaled down the the room service or, uh, you know, housekeeping service, which, you know, I think if you're really juggling between a hotel and an Airbnb, that's probably one of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, selling points is kind of not having to worry about uh, making the bed every day and taking the trash out, which, you know, I think that does put them in a, in a tough spot to, to compete. Yeah. And I guess I would say hotels have responded by saying we have the cleanliness protocols 
that you can be comfortable with. You know a Hilton, you know a Marriott, here's what we're doing. Whereas when you go to an Airbnb, you may say, I I don't know what their cleanliness protocols are and are they as stringent? Are they, you know, waving that UV wand that's supposed to kill all the virus in the room like twice a day? Um, But whereas the hotels have really advertised because it's one of the top three considerations for travelers right now is the cleanliness and safety protocol. So they've come out with a marketing campaign to say, here's everything we are doing and why it is a differentiated experience from an Airbnb. Oh yeah, the airlines are like, you can't get COVID on a plane. And meanwhile, the person next to you could be coughing in your face the whole time. But yeah. so I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I, I remember Alaska Airlines had a Super Bowl ad where they basically had like a like a cleaning the plane jingle going on, which was I think the first time I'd ever seen an airline uh, advertise during the Super Bowl. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think you know, you, you, and you touched on this earlier when we talked about hotel design, and I think you'll see this in in office space a ton, and, and maybe some multifamily. But was that you know, uh, t- touchless uh, security and stuff like that, just kind of avoiding avoiding that contact. Um, you know, I think do do you see do you see that you know are, are hotels really equipped to make those changes now, or is that kind of you know, look, we have we have a laundry list of things we're worried about before we can kind of gut our hotels to update for those things. Yeah, well, the, the the situation is just that cash is king right now. And so in your prioritization of investments, are you really investing in technology that's required to be go touchless or go digital with your um, menu offerings, et cetera? It's just a matter of where you're spending your dollars. And mm-hmm. right now, conserving those dollars just might be the top priority to make it through. Um, so half of hotel rooms will still projected to remain empty through 2021. So, I mean, that's a really staggering statistic that the American Hotel and Lodging Association put out in their 2021 outlook for hospitality. And so ultimately it's how do we stay alive? And yes, these are important investments. And for those investors that have strong balance sheets that were well positioned ahead of the pandemic, that were already making these investments, it's not a heavy lift. But for those that weren't even thinking about it, this just might be too much to bear. And it may be time for that asset to trade hands to reposition it either as an updated hospitality offering with those bells and whistles that'll be expected going forward with the updated HVAC systems that clients and guests will require is really table stakes. Or, um, you know, will it be a play to say this is too far gone and actually there's such a need for housing in this country? Are some of these assets better repositioned as multifamily? And so maybe some of those CBD, limited service, hotel properties in Manhattan don't make sense as hotels anymore and they should be reconverted for multifamily. So there's definitely um, considerations Mm -hmm. going on on that highest and best use going forward here out of the pandemic as well. I think that's a that's a really good point because especially about the conversion piece. And I know I know that you know you, you used to see um, you know if, if if you were a potential tenant, you loved actually the office to multifamily uh, conversions best because the quality of the build was so strong. But if you're an owner, uh, that means you have some really high rents to support, and 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 that's a lot trickier. Whereas I think a hotel definitely you know, smaller units probably lends itself more to that millennial who's looking to, to find a, a, a budget, a budget uh, residential option. Absolutely. Um, so back to, and, and I think, you know, just in terms of staying afloat, the sentiment about, about lending and, you know, kicking that can down the road. 
our, our lenders, uh, owners, you know, borrowers and, and kind of, you know, all, all people that fall into the group that your clients fall into with the, the trends here that are looking like we're going to get a new COVID stimulus bill that looks to be pretty sizable. How, is this kind of, this was great until we need another one? You know, do they feel confident that the government's going to continue to foot this bill? Uh, you know, how are, are people kind of just hoping and praying and doing their best in the interim? Well, yeah, this was absolutely required. So the $908 billion coronavirus stimulus package passed in December is a welcome relief. Let's state that it's absolutely needed, but more aid is absolutely needed to dig the sector out of the recession. And while the December package did include, you know, $284 billion earmarked for a second round of PPP, so the Paycheck Protection Program loans, which are really popular among hospitality and lodging with big workforces, it was expanded for them to actually be able to take advantage of individual loans up to 350% of their average monthly payroll, mm-hmm. which was a significant increase over the original uh, Paycheck Protection Program allowance. They also came out and said that the PPP loan expenses are tax deductible and included a one-year extension to the troubled debt restructuring relief, which again will incent lenders to continue to work with their borrowers on forbearance and debt relief through 2021. While there were other incentives included in that bill, like employer retention credits and business meal tax deductibility credits through 2022, the ability to stay afloat is so dependent on additional fiscal aid and support. There's just too much distress in the industry to be solved for with an additional package that was, you know, it's stated in the name as a stimulus. It's more of aid. It's more of life support for an industry that's been so hardly hit. So when we look at, again, that American Hotel and Lodging Association report and forecast for 2021, they forecast business travel to be down 85% compared to 2019 through April 2021. And now we see with this vaccine roulette that is going slower than anticipated, those dates can be pushed back. And also it's going to be an anemic recovery when we even start to have it. And then only 56% of consumers say that they're ready to travel for leisure. And so that's, you know, about the same as in an average year. But like we mentioned, that leisure travel looks different. It might be concentrated to certain geographies that fared well through the summer months in 2020. So it's more of the same winners and potential losers going through 2021. And so again, more, more, more is needed. But how much is enough before we say there's a lot of dry capital waiting on the sidelines? Um, Perhaps hotels should be trading during this period um, to new owners who have the ability and the wherewithal um, to see through the recovery and where it pencils out in terms of their underwriting, the ability to take on that risk. So more to come. Definitely um, a difficult time to be to be in the industry. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, to to kind of segue into a conversation that I think will hopefully appeal to a lot of Crix users in general about hotel valuations, you know, I think where that uncertainty around how much, you know, I, I like what you said about it's really more aid than it is stimulus. And I think what that, that uncertainty about how much longer that runway is and, and what will be needed in the future is kind of leading to a bit of a standstill when it comes to real estate transactions. And former higher up of mine, uh, when I was working in brokerage, he used to say, you know, we're not in the real estate business, we're in the real estate transaction business. So I kind of wanted to reference a, uh, I believe, a little report that you put together back in November 
These days, in this pandemic-induced recession, transaction activity for hotel properties has effectively frozen as buyers and sellers remain stalemated over market values for distressed properties. The bid-ask gap is wide, and neither party is willing to budge. Not exactly what you want to hear if you're a hotel broker. So do you think that this still rings true? And has that gap widened? It's maybe narrowed a little bit or widened? Or you know, what's, what's your thought, Rat? Maybe aside from values, just strictly velocity of them changing hands. Yeah. And so ultimately, the bid-ask gap isn't as wide as it once was at the early days of the pandemic, because now we have a lot more information. So as COVID has progressed here, we've gained additional certainty in terms of the unbelievable ability of our scientists to produce a vaccine that responds to it. So there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We just don't know how much longer that tunnel is. But for those out there in the market, valuation continues to be exceptionally difficult without the price discovery that's available via active market transactions. So what you're seeing currently in the market, you know, aren't really, you know, on the table market transactions and public transactions that may be private deals or lender facilitated deals that are off market that don't indicate, you know, fair market value for market participants and again, provide just a tougher bridge between that that bid-ask gap that really is required to see additional activity in the marketplace. So a lot of the deals that occurred in 2020 were already in the works in 2019. And so ultimately, buyers came to the table. Blackstone was one of the buyers on a huge portfolio that included some Las Vegas assets that skewed the transactional activity even for 2020. So it actually looked less bad than it actually was. And so in 2021, now you're seeing people more willing to come to the table, understanding that they don't have the liquidity to see it through to the other side of the pandemic. Uh, There is some preservation of equity that's available, or maybe just walking away and saying, I have nothing left and I'm handing it back to the bank. And so that is also um, something that we anticipate will pick up pace here in the second half of 2021. So I think I think you actually kind of did, did a good job of summarizing what what deals get done from a um, you know maybe the way their balance sheet looks perspective you know the deals that kind of ran, ran out of runway or the lenders kind of pulled the plug on or, or an operator said I just can't take the headache anymore I'm going to get out while I still can if you kind of shifted more to those fundamentals we were talking about before where you look at limited versus full service maybe regions you know for the deals that are actually in fact happening you know, what do those deals look like, at least uh, from, from your vantage? Yeah. And so a lot are seeing that the, the actually the bigger assets are, are more likely to trade than smaller boutique type assets. Um, so it may be a perception of the value at this point of time is just really attractive for someone that believes that the core market for those assets will return at some point in the future. It's just, again, the ability to hang on. And so ultimately, the fundamentals for travel, um, everyone agrees we're in a society where you are uh, having wanderlust, you're looking at your Instagram, social media, and you want to travel. And that's, you know, the millennial generation and the generation after that, that has different preferences than the boomers per se, who uh, loved going into the office, working from a place and maybe traveled for leisure and retirement. You're seeing that this is almost a requirement of work. If I can work from a different destination and utilize hospitality as my, my preference to stay, that is a shift that has been occurring that has been accelerated via the pandemic. And so ultimately we are seeing 
some of those investors that are bullish on what hospitality looks like into the future focused on, again, those lifestyle brands, those mm-hmm. brands that can bring right. value, um, the limited service that was catering to the essential workers that continues just to be um, a great safe cash flow opportunity. Um, but again, the, those assets that have been depressed that are, you know, marquee assets, let's say it's the fountain blue in Miami. Um, somebody wants that and the demand for that asset will return. It's just a matter of when. Totally. And, and I think, you know, in, in terms of that matter of when, what, you know, I know, I know, like we said, if, you know, if you had a magic ball and new and transaction would spark, you know, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be investing in hotels yourself. So, you know, what, what, um, you know, maybe rather than just the pure timing of when you see it come back, maybe, maybe what are some, uh, some indicators that we would know, okay, now is when that bid ask gap is going to start to narrow and we'll start to see the transactions, right? Yeah. So if you start looking at, that's a great question. If you start looking at the pricing in of risk, so if you're looking at the total risk um, from an equity perspective that's being uh, required in the market, we've seen an o- over 129% increase just this quarter um, to a 495% increase on a year on year basis for hospitality assets. And so ultimately what's that saying in terms of an indicator is that the perceived default risk for hotels is continuing to widen compared to other types of commercial real estate. And so that's consistent with, you know, our other risk premium indicators that we're looking at, which is to say that, okay, there's still a significant risk here. It's getting pricier from a capital stack perspective, from a lending perspective to lend on. So that may indicate that distress indeed will come and it's likely to be coming, I'd say, sooner than later, given um, just where we're at in terms of recovery, the pandemic and the appetite for banks to continue to kick the can down the road is really dissipating. So you're seeing um, a repositioning of their portfolios, the the way that they're exposed to risk and how they're looking at it. So as you know, terms come up, they may say we're, we're just not willing to lend. We're pulling back on our hospitality uh, portfolio, and it is what it is. And you've seen a lot of specialty lenders come into the market, some mezzanine players, pref equity. But again, it just makes your deal more and more expensive, and it might not make sense after a point in time in terms of underwriting. So um, those are some of the um, indicators that we're watching very closely just to indicate that it's getting more expensive and there's a, a risk premium that's there that may indicate it's it's better to wait for some distress to happen than just to go openly transact in the market um, at this point in time. Right. And I, th- I think that 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 insight into the the equity requirements for purchases lends itself to the, what you kind of kicked off our, our show with here, which is cash is king. So it really does help those people that are that are low leverage buyers and, and you know, those all cash buyers. So, you know, you, you, you hit on distressed assets, you know, do you think and, and maybe that we're still in a bit of a wait and see here. But, you know, I know in 08, 09, a lot of people kind of made their biggest win in the real estate cycle by acquiring distressed assets via loan sales or auction platforms. You know, are those do you think the where, where the smart money would go right now? And it's more just waiting for those opportunities to arise as, as you know, lender runway runs out. Yeah. So again, it's that lender runway and waiting for those opportunities. So you really don't want to veer from your investment thesis. So if you had a strong belief in the fundamentals going into the pandemic, you may say there's some really attractive opportunities in the market now 
for my underwriting uh, strategy. Um, and so really it is a case-by-case -case investment in terms of what that looks like, what the length of ownership looks like, and where you're placing your bets. And so ultimately there is a ton of dry powder that's been sitting on the sidelines. So many are saying that this distress is just not going to materialize in the way that everyone's anticipating it to, because there's just so much dry powder that's waiting to be deployed in the market that's going to prop up these asset prices artificially. And so what you don't want to end up happening is investing at something at an artificial price point that just won't be supported in terms of the growth trajectory going forward for your hold period horizon. And so again, it's case by case, too soon to tell yet. I know that's a terrible answer, but I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not a clairvoyant. And I'd say proceed with caution, underwrite to your worst worst case scenario. And so there are going to be some good deals out there to get your hands on, some marquee assets. But again, it's going to really um, depend on the positioning of your balance sheet, the strength of that. And, you know, if a deal is too good to be true, maybe it just is. I think I think that's that's an excellent uh, you know advice to hopefully some of our listeners slash buy side users here at Crexy on on kind of how to approach these assets and you know not to uh, not to have you talk out of both sides of your mouth but maybe one an interesting dynamic would be is whether you're an owner of hospitality or or really like a selling broker of hospitality how do you present your asset you know what parts of your asset are are valuable to the market right now or how how do you highlight a hotel asset uh, when you're taking it to market in this in this climate. So what would be really valuable is in that inherent ability to pivot with the new market requirements. So if you are in a market with multiple different demand generators, you're going to be much better positioned than a market that's reliant on a single demand generator. So really thinking about, you know, what those future demand generators, is it a market that's really highly dependent on business travel, corporate travel? Is it a convention-centric market? Um, is it driven by university and activities that happened around university campuses? And so really thinking about what the future looks like um, across industries is important. And it's kind of wild. They always say the real estate investor has to be the smartest in the room because you really have to have a strong understanding about all of the shifting preferences and themes going on in every other industry to support why or why not your investment makes sense. And so in terms of hospitality, it is understanding that the demand generators of yesterday don't look like the demand generators of tomorrow. And those teams that are best positioned for success really understand that hospitality isn't just another real estate holding. It is a living, breathing, dynamic operating business. And so understanding um, all those nuances and requirements is critical um, to the success of um, your business plan going forward. That was, that was I think, like, very helpful insight. And one thing you did touch on, and I promise this is actually the last thought I'll, I'll leave you with, but um, one thing you did touch on that I found super interesting when I was working in the multi-housing space was, was student housing. And, you know, I think education is something that obviously is going to be, you know, impacted in ways that people don't foresee, at least in the people that you're, you know, interacting with and, and, and talking to hospitality and student housing markets. Is it still in favor with people or do they think that there may be a hit on demand for those types of assets? Yeah, well, actually, we have what we've seen in the market is people doubling down on student housing. And so the, the student housing stock itself 
um, remains outdated. It was built in the 50s and 60s predominantly where communal living was all the rage. And now we've seen um, that there's been a demand for more uh, apartment style student housing. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is that, you know, students don't really want to take virtual learning lessons in their parents' basements. They want to gather, be in communities. And if Alabama winning the national title is any indication, no one cares about social distancing and uh, (laughs) following those protocols. And so people are still going to travel and want to be part of an experience. If their team's, you know, winning and they're, they're out for a football game, they're going to use those uh, hospitality assets as an opportunity to be close to campus and join in and, and have that camaraderie that they seek. And so I certainly don't see that going away. There will be winners and losers as with everything, those universities that, Again, I hate to keep you know stressing the fundamentals, but strong balance sheets, great alumni bases, they'll be able to see it through the other side. And some of those regional type um, campuses that attract commuters, you know, they're going to have struggles and, and potentially shut down, especially with the state and local government funding that continues to dwindle as we see the effects of the pandemic on tax revenues being raised and inability to further support some higher education institutions. There's just going to be a consolidation naturally in that space. And so again, make your bets on those institutions that have the financial wherewithal, the um, brand recognition, uh, where students you know in the long run will want to be. So it sounds like you're at you're advocating, uh, you know, strong, educated, uh, highly capable, you know, uh, ac- you know, academic institutions like my alma mater, Michigan right. and Arbor, are kind of right. ideal investment, ideal investment targets. Absolutely. So and, and yeah, Arbor I, will continue. I knew, I knew that, but it's always good to have it confirmed. <laughs> and you're just coming off a great Super Bowl bowl win from uh, Tom Brady, another uh, alumni there. So why not? You know, go Michigan. Uh, that's that's. Exactly. Exactly. Go blue indeed. Well, uh, Laura, thank you so much. I think it's just coming from, as I said, I think before we spoke is hospitality is not necessarily an area of expertise for mine, but I I learned a ton and you really see this from all angles. So really appreciate your insights and especially how in tune you are with all the, all the updates and how this is such an ever changing, uh, you know, dynamic in the market right now. So appreciate your time with us today. I know you're very, very busy. So thank you for, for sitting down with us. Is there uh, is there a place where people can get in touch with you if they, if they want to reach out or ask you questions or business wise? Absolutely, Ryan. So I'm available on all social media platforms, LinkedIn and Twitter. You can follow me, uh, see more of my insights that I share along with the other analysts on my team that are focused on real estate. So um, definitely reach out and find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Awesome. Well, Laura, thank you so much. And thanks to everyone who tuned in today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to not miss the next one. Visit go.crexy.com slash podcast and sign up to get the very next episode delivered straight to your inbox. Laura, thanks again. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure not to miss the next one. Visit go.crexy.com slash podcast. That's go.crexi.com forward slash podcast and sign up to get the very next episode delivered straight to your inbox. You can also subscribe to the Crexy podcast on your favorite podcast app or check out our YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash Crexy for video recordings of each episode. Goodbye. Stay well. We'll see you next time.